Welcome back. Welcome to Decision, Decision Space, Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions and games. And today we're going to be talking about learning plays in board games. And I, I would even say we might talk about games that what what about a game might make that type of game require more learning plays. I know there's a subset of people who listen to our show for more designer focused conversations. And I think that we might delve into just a little bit of that of sort of these mechanisms tend to be harder for people to wrap their heads around just from reading a rule, uh, a rule book. So the emergent consequences of that game uh, and the systems are such that you have to play it two or three times uh, to really fully understand and make meaningful, informed decisions in the game. So we'll talk about that too. And then we might also talk about sort of the market landscape around the sort of games that are in style and sort of the design. What am I looking for, Jake? In the market yeah, and the where market it's landscape. moved. The market landscape. Thank you. Yeah, I looked at the notes. Heck yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so... If, Brendan, you were, for example, playing a really complicated game and it was a first learning play, yep. you weren't fully able to grok all the systems, all the implications of that system in a play, would you then go on to your podcast and talk all about that play and why it was so frustrating? I think absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to back you up. Because clearly that's what we did last yeah. week. And I just wanted to say at the top of the show, I think some of listeners, I've seen some feedback, were frustrated about the coverage of Pipeline on this show. And I just want to make clear that was a learning play for us. That was just an initial impression used as a jumping off point for that conversation. So if you feel like that episode was all about bashing Pipeline, I assure you that was not the intention uh, if it came off that way. I've been wanting to do this episode on learning plays for a long time, and I'm going to define learning plays. Jake, tell me if you think there's anything we should add to this definition as initial plays of the game. So it could be even more than the first play if a game really required a couple plays that help the players learn the ins and outs of a game so they can make more fully informed decisions within it or while playing it. I think that's a good start. Yeah. I mean, my sort of working definition of learning play is almost a composite of different parts like it's almost like a checklist you'd go through and if any one thing was true then it's a learning play mm. and perhaps most importantly is this anybody's first play of the game sure and i think if i think if yes then this is a you know learning play and i think that jake just to briefly because i don't want to focus on it i want to get into the learning plays but just to briefly reply i think that one really important thing about games that we have to think about, right, is that every single play of a game that we have is a play of that game, right? Just because it's your first time playing a game doesn't mean it's not a valid play of that game or is a valid part of your experience. An interesting thing about games is that we have to learn to play them. One of the challenges with a game, right, is that you there's some struggle to overcome obstacles within that game. And you're when playing a game, you're learning the language of the game, right? You're learning systems, you're learning the shorthand for the design and how the mechanisms come together such that you can basically sort of carry the cognitive load or of that game more easily in subsequent plays or understand the relationship between mechanisms so you can make more informed decisions. So I think that it's not it's not like learning plays are, are less valid experiences of a game. In some ways, they're even more valid or representative of the aggregate sort of average experience of how people will experience any given game. Because for all intents and purposes, a lot of people don't play a game four or five times. They play it once, maybe twice. And then that's enough to say, yeah, of course I've played this game. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And what that makes clear to me is that a learning play is not a real thing, right? It's sort of a social construct that we sure. are self-imposing or self-determining about a play of a board game that has consequences to the magic circle that we're playing in. Mm. And I think when, you know, whenever we come together to play a game, we make stated or unstated social agreements about that game. And I think one of those things is, is this a learning game? And people might disagree on, you know, what makes something a learning game uh, and what is acceptable in a learning game. But I think if you're playing your group and you're like, this is a learning game, then that changes the expectations for norms and behaviors in that play. Like perhaps doing like, oh, is it okay if I walk this play back mm. now that I've realized the implications of that? If 
you know, the the board state hasn't changed or whatever since since you made that move. That's generally more acceptable if it's a learning play of a game, because I think, at least for me, in my mental model, if I'm in a learning game, something I prioritize higher is in everybody's enjoyment and having fun in a game as opposed to having the fairest possible competition. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. You probably wouldn't ask the same thing in a tournament game. Right, exactly. If somebody yeah. says, hey, can I take back my attack into your taunt creature in a Keyforge tournament? It's like, oh, no, like, sorry. That's but. part of the cognitive load <laughs> of the game. That's a skill yeah, that's being tested. Yeah, exactly. Where if, if we're playing Keyforge for the first time, of course, like you didn't understand the mechanics and let's, it'll be more fun for everyone if you take that back and make a more thoughtful decision. Exactly. So I have this broader, I want to zoom back just for a second. Okay. Did we go too deep too fast? I don't think so. But I just want to talk about context briefly and get your thoughts on this sort of like general thesis, which I think is largely agreed on. But here's this idea. So I think that there are more games released now designed to have really, really strong first play experiences, right? So that don't require as much of a learning play to fully understand the game. Because in 2024, when we're releasing this podcast, or 2023, when I've had a lot of recent new game experiences, there are more games competing for the market's competition. There's more games being published every year for the last 20 or so years. So there's more demand. So the because of that increased demand, games have to be more accessible because people have more competition for their time. So they're less likely to give a game two or three or four plays to be able to say, oh, now I get it. Now I see why this game is so good. People generally, if you could play a game that's really good on its first play and really good on its fifth play, you might not be as willing to play a game that needs two or three plays to really sink your teeth into, even if by its seventh or eighth play, it's even more interesting than the game that's really good out of the gate. And I don't want to draw a false dichotomy here fully. I think there's the goal here is to have a game that's really amazing on its first play, its fifth play, and its 100th play. That's I, I think everyone wants a game that's always engaging to them. But I will say w- something about our show is that I think we tend to like to play games repeatedly to kind of probe the depths of them, to fully understand the decision space so we can meaningfully engage with them, something we didn't necessarily do when we were talking about Pipeline, just a first play, first learning play experience, fresh off the cuff. And that's okay too. But I think that I want to, in some ways, because of these market trends, make this claim that it's okay for games to have learning plays, that it's fun to learn games, for for me at least. And I like when a game asks that of me, because in some ways, learning the game and its systems or its strategic environment becomes a part of the fun puzzle of playing the game. Yeah, all of that is true i am not somebody who has a lot of knowledge about you know board game consumer trends or the board game market generally but i think the thesis that designers and publishers are publishing games tuned more to the first play than the 20th play matches my experience like i think that's true i think that is what is happening and for good reason because when i look at myself As a consumer of board games, there are seldom few games that I purchase that reach five plays like Mm -hmm. on the table. And, you know, I I have a board game podcast. You know, we talk about games every week. Uh, I have a game group of equally enthusiastic board gamers. Uh, We play every Monday and it is very rare that we revisit a game. I think all I was looking, we were looking at our stats, the laughing table friend games played stats and there were like five games that we had played more than once last year and we had played like 96 games together wow so that's a lot of first plays and so i you know i am a symptom of this first plays dominate my on table time experience yeah however i also go deep in games but those i'm primarily playing on board game arena yeah so i do with that what you will uh, but clearly, like for me, if I'm and we sometimes do like quick one off reviews, like those are all learning plays. And I'm kind yeah. of giving my impressions on them based that on that one play. So even for us who tend to go deeper, right, that's kind of our thing with our deep dive show. You know, I, we're still or I'm still playing games uh, in the sort of like hotness board game consuming 
uh, cycle that I think a, a lot of other people also get wrapped up in. Yeah, and I think that there's, I, I don't necessarily want my like claim that I want there to be room for games that, that have maybe a clunky first or second play to like i think it's great to play lots of games too it's it's really cool that we have so many options and there's so many different types of games that appeal to us so i don't want to make a claim too far in that direction but i think there's a chance jake that some people might just say like is this just going to be a discussion about depth like are learning plays just about depth and i want to respond to that at the top of the show and say not quite i don't think fully and here's why i think so a game that came to mind of for me, of as a game that doesn't really require learning plays to fully make interesting decisions within it is Cascadia. Cascadia is a game that I've played with people who don't often play games and they have really great first plays. I certainly had a good first play of it where I felt I could make meaningful decisions within that game. So I think in part because the incentive system is so clear and the mechanisms are all, they're interesting, but they're all pretty, uh, there's not a lot of emergent consequences of the mechanism that are there that you couldn't just by looking at it sort of not anticipate sort of the outcome of something or there wasn't anything else about the game outside of like maybe some minor things that you do get to learn that really stand out the first time i played cascadia and the hundredth time i've played cascadia and i have played it over a hundred times i feel like i was making meaningful decisions and i think calico a game kind of cut from the same cloth falls into that category too yeah and did i say that i think those are deep games i i don't I don't think you mentioned that. Is, that needs to be said. Saying. That's an important okay. point. And those are deep I was kind of wondering. I was like, what are we doing yeah, here? Like, yeah, there's a I, lot of yeah. games you make meaningful decisions. Okay, so yeah. we're thinking about... And those are deep games too. Deep yeah. games that don't require learning play. That's the idea Would of it, why this isn't just a discussion of depth. Yeah. And in this category of games, so I guess to put it to the test with Cascadia, Yeah. You've you and Maya have played it 100 times. Sure. Uh, or more. You have yeah. your mom over to visit and she hasn't played it before you throw her right yeah. in is mom having a good time making yeah, meaningful I, I think decisions so. okay yes yeah. yeah exactly that's kind of the test right so another way to think about it is sort of how informed are players decisions in the initial play if their decisions are close to as informed as they'll be not you know it doesn't have to be perfect I think you're largely not needing a learning play to really get the core of that experience Raiders yeah. of the North Sea Kind of I falls in that category. Yeah. Can I just make a quick point? Because I Please. think that experience, like controlling for... Yeah. these This has to make sense not controlling for experience level. Because you put two brand new players to chess at a chessboard and have them play chess against each other. They'll probably have a good time sure. making meaningful decisions in that play. But when you control or you know don't control for player experience in chess and you have a, a master versus a novice then all of a sudden it all falls apart. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I think almost any game is going to have relatively meaningful decisions if experience level is all exactly at the same level zero. Totally. And I think another good way of thinking about that too is, you know, whenever we play a, a game, just like if we read a book or watch a movie and we see a trope and we can bring that knowledge of that trope to a new a new piece of media and get something more out of that new piece of media having seen a trope before. I think that applies to mechanisms and games, right? So if you've never played a deck building game, your first play of Dominion, that might be more of a learning play as you kind of get familiar with the mechanism of deck building. But if you've played a bunch of deck building games and then go back to Dominion, you're probably going to be making pretty meaningful decisions from your first play. Yeah. Now, I think this is interesting. So do you think this is kind of the gold standard if the market trends are what we think that in fact designers aren't necessarily designing for a first play they're designing for a game that doesn't require a learning play i kind of think so i think that's I kind the of goal think right that's a pretty good insight right there yeah. yeah i think that if your game is just amazing on the first play but really falls down on the fourth and fifth play i think you're gonna miss a loud enough segment of the market it, the game just won't hit for them that you'll lose the, the momentum you need so really you what you want is a game that is a, a banger out of the gate and a banger five games in right and also that it can be a banger when it's somebody's fifth play and somebody's, somebody's first, first play, play. in yeah. the same game because and at i least think close enough right yeah. i think there could be a lot of games actually torres a game that i love you yeah. know and i've talked a lot about on this show is kind, it's kind of one, what it needs eight learning plays well, what I was going to say is like, I had a ton of fun with it with my first play. Sure. 
learning the game and I felt like, okay, I get this. I'm making meaningful decisions. This is actually like the most accessible and intuitive of those mass trilogy games, which it is. Yeah. Having not played Mexico, but I've been like showing it to people and like the gap in skill just because I've now played it a dozen times. And, and being the person with a dozen plays, it just happened at Geekway Mini where I played a bunch and now I have like showing it to people at Geekway Mini and I'm just like kind of just dominating them with knowledge of the game yeah. that they don't have. And that's kind of made that play, you know, it's, a, it's still a learning game because there's like people learning in it, but definitely like not as sing as well because they're just kind of like, okay, well, Jake knows all the tricks already. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. No, completely. I want to rattle off some examples of games that I think are deep that don't really require learning plays before we pivot into examples of games that typically require learning plays and talking about what we can learn from that type of game and why it sort of necessitates a learning play. Does that sound good, Jake? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so some examples of popular games I don't think really require learning plays to make informed decisions in those initial plays are games like Raiders of the North Sea, a really cool worker placement game uh, that has a neat mechanism that's novel and interesting, but sort of easy to understand. And the card pool, there is a big card pool in that game. We'll talk about card pools in a minute, but I don't think you really need to fully understand the card pool to make meaningful decisions in that games. I think Codenames is a great example of this. Codenames is clear enough that you can kind of get the rules pretty clear out of the gate, though there is one major mistake you can make in Codenames that might tip it slightly into the learning play game if someone makes it early on, which is if you don't consider if your clue is going to set someone up to hit the assassin, it can be it can just throw the game. No, yeah, I mean, I guess, but that's still just like hilarious and fun. And and now you just start another game. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about auction games later because I think auction games are games that really require learning plays. But Raw is an example of an auction game I don't think requires as much of learning play in part because the amount that you can bid is so restrained in that game that it's harder to make large mistakes or misvalue things to an enormous degree. It's like the most like on rails auction game that there is yeah. like you, did, yeah. you just can't mess up that much in a i mean i guess you could way. but like you would have to be like really silly to throw yeah. away your most you know highest piece for nothing and part of this is because you are just so, for people who haven't uh, played raw this is an auction game where your bids are in set denominations based on the sundus you have and whenever you you're bidding for something you're gonna essentially get a new sun disc and a group of tiles so you can't just bid and maybe say a game like modern art where you could bid i don't know $100 for a painting. Yeah, sometimes you it happens to... in in auction games where somebody just like says a bid that's just like way above what the market should be and everybody's yeah. just kind of like nervously laughs like, yeah, it's yours. And now the game is kind of like Thrown. messed up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So quickly, I think Heat falls into this category too, Jake. Uh, heat has some nuance, but I think more or less, you can make big mistakes in Heat that can kind of throw your first game, which there's some learning aspects to that. But overall, I think that you can get a pretty clear sense of that game the first play. The Crew, Pandemic, uh, Great Western Trail, a lot of roll and writes like Welcome To and Cartographers and Railroad Inc. I think these are all examples of games that do a really good job of having strong first plays where you can make meaningful and interesting decisions. Um right out the gate and don't really require learning plays. And they're also really popular games. I, I have to push back on just a couple. Okay. I think Great Western Trail and Barrage are just like, I think a game can reach a level of like weight mm. where it's just so heavy that like, I think it, it may, it feels to me like it requires learning play just because for people to get the systems down and kind of understand what is happening. Yeah. I'm also not sure that Barrage great or Great Western Trail holds up to the, test of not controlling for player experience mm. like i think like somebody who's played a lot of barrage and somebody brand new to it you might be reach coming closer to something like chess <laughs> okay than, fair than enough you might, than you might expect. and the other interesting one is pandemic which i think importantly also doesn't hold up to that test uh because like pandemic is cl- a classic game that can have like a quarterbacking problem where if somebody just mm. internalizes and understands the puzzle way more than the rest of the table the game doesn't do anything to control for that in terms of like limited communication or whatever. So if that player can feel like either I direct everything and say what everyone should do, or you're just sitting there like biting your knuckles while letting people make mistakes. I think- so, I mean, I, I 
I think that yes, like this is a game that can have a good first play. But if we're trying to go, you know, say that there's something more to this than just sure good out of the gate, then I think it kind of falls down there. Let me push back slightly, but I think you're probably ultimately right. But I want to make this argument that the way the infection deck works. So in pandemic, there's all these cities out and it's a deck where you flip cards. And whenever you flip a city, a card from the top of the deck, it says a city and you have to add a cube to that city that represents disease spreading. And you'll keep flipping cards off the top of the deck until you get to one of these special uh, infect cards, I believe they're called, that then causes basically this like larger outbreak. And then you shuffle up all the cards that have already been revealed, take out that card that caused the, the outbreak, and then go again. So you know the pool of cards that could be revealed. And once you get past all the cards you've already seen, you'll get to new cards. And I think that provides a really nice learning curve for the game. Uh, learning curve is something that will probably come up because we're talking about learning plays. Uh, but within the game of itself, the game kind of teaches you what you need to be worried about and helps you prioritize and juggle threats because of that mechanism. Yeah, that for sure. I, and I might be like getting a little too stuck on this idea that uh, a game requires a learning play unless people of different skill levels sure. can show up to the game and play it together but i do but at the same time i think there's merit to that idea and i think again to use the chess example right like if you want to truly play chess against people who really play chess then you're going to be playing thousands of learning games yes and there's chess apps dedicated to just learning games of chess would that give you like whole curriculum to learn to play the game so i actually think that's a really good proof point for this argument that yeah, I'm absolutely forward. okay. Can we talk about games that do require learning plays now? Yeah. Okay. So I think chess could be one. Yes, definitely. Okay. Chess is great. We're going to bookend this conversation with two abstracts. I think this okay, is a beautiful perfect. idea. We'll start with chess. Okay. Just, and maybe we should just talk about chess now, actually. I think okay. you were kind of saying it to ingest, but I think it illustrates some interesting points. And I think that one of the reasons is that, chess requires so much forward planning that you can't always understand the consequences of your moves, right? So games that require lots of long-term planning just because of that require more learning plays because you can't always understand the consequences of your actions and the potential subsequent actions without having experienced them, right? Sometimes you have to see the consequences play out. Yeah. And I just to zoom out a little bit, like, and and this will be the last time I say this on this episode, I swear. But the reason that it requires learning plays to understand the long-term strategy and understand the different like tactics and like pattern recognition that can like happen in chess is because if you do not know that, you cannot meaningfully engage in a game of chess against somebody who does. Right. And I think that is uh, an important, I don't know if that's going to be the point, uh, an important distinction in all of these games that we're talking about that require learning play. But I think as in, in as insofar as that like skill level difference, that's why we would say chess requires a learning game, not because the rules are really complicated at all. Uh, it's, yeah. it's because of the long-term planning and also like just some level of like skill differentiation. Yep. And even cognitive load and just reading the board in some cases with chess too. But okay, my next big example, get any drafting game with a card pool. So like Race for the Galaxy, Bunny Kingdom, Seven Wonders, even Agricola and the cards that are in that game. It's not exactly a drafting game, but this applies or games like Blood Rage because in these types of games, learning the card pool, what options are available, how the what the sort of payoffs of certain strategic paths might be is a key part of making informed decisions in those games. So it's really tough. Jake, we've, we've recently been playing Bunny Kingdom. I really like Richard Garfield games. I like drafting games. I like games I can play fairly quickly. So Bunny Kingdom is one where we had a, a first few plays and we were sort of like, uh, I don't know. And I kind of stuck with it and I kept playing. And I'm not saying we might do an episode on Bunny Kingdom at some point. And I don't know that it's going to be your favorite game of all time or my favorite game of all time. But I stuck with it and I saw like, oh, there's some really nuanced, interesting decisions here. And then I came back and I said, Jake, like, you just give it two more plays. And then what happened? Yeah, and I've been liking it a lot more. And I, yeah. I think for me, the thing that made it uh, start to click for me was it, it started to click and started to be enjoyable at about the same time as I started internalizing the card pool. Yeah. 
Bunny Kingdom is also a game that just hands you like, here's 16 cards to look at or whatever. How many cards are in the first hand? It's a big pack, yeah. It's a huge pack of cards. Uh, and a lot of them work similarly. But in my initial plays of the game, I found myself like going to the rule book all the time because there's just a lot of like funny little rules in it. Like, okay, wait, what is a Fife? Okay, what is a city? Yeah. How does the scoring of Fives work? How did, you know okay these these are other types of tokens like sky towers and rare can, can sky towers stack and yeah just all kinds of stuff that you're that i felt like i was constantly like looking at and it made it really hard to engage meaningfully with the drafting decisions as yeah. soon as i started internalizing some of that i started feeling like oh i'm making actual decisions and as soon as i was making decisions and learning and improving at the game it started feeling a lot better and a lot more fun and i think so, that is pretty much case in point with drafting games in general here i think a lot we'll probably go back to cognitive load a lot right this idea of like how much is the game demanding of of my brain um and i think that a huge part of learning plays in drafting games is, are just internalizing the rules on cards i've gotten to the point with bunny kingdom right where i can just look at a card and see its art and say oh that's a slam dunk for me i want that card uh not even have to read the rules of it which frees up my brain to think more about the consequences of the decision i'm making than thinking about the rules of learning that card and especially I think, oh yeah sorry go ahead. no go for it i say especially in a drafting game which is like explicitly about what cards you've seen what cards yeah. might come back to you yep when you compare it to a game like sushi go right yeah that might be kind of a, an example of a drafting game that if it doesn't require if it requires learning play i don't know it's, it certainly gets you know it feels like a drafting game that's like intentionally been designed for this market trend of not needing one where one of the joys of that game is like you're engaging with that like table wheeling aspect of the game yeah. right away yeah and i, think, I i've played bunny kingdom five times i still don't think i've thought once about like could this card come back to me i'm just still fully on making the best decision with the cards in front of me playing it tactically rather than strategically yeah. totally and partly and it, that might be because of asynchronous play sure you'll get there though because it's it gets deeper but i will say i think bunny kingdom we don't need to make this a, a episode on bunny kingdom but i've played a lot of seven wonders too i've played like 700 games of seven wonders and it took me even more learning plays of Seven Wonders to feel like I was making more fully informed decisions because in Seven Wonders, there's costs on a lot of cards where you have to have certain resources to be able to even play specific cards. So learning what cards are in future card pools that you're going to draft from becomes a key thing as you're setting up future decisions. So there, I needed to learn even more about what cards existed in the pool so I could make those informed decisions. And I think Bunny Kingdom does a good job of sort of saying, well, for the most part, you could kind of take anything, but the payoff of those are going to vary wildly. And then I think from just this idea of like, you have to learn the card pools, we can extrapolate this broader idea that games where it's impractical to learn the nuances of all the pieces before play are going to require a learning play. Cool. Yeah. Like if there's like a big tech tree. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like that. I mean, that, that'd do it. That, that would do it. Yeah. Just stuff like that's kind of like extraneous bits and bobs. Like I feel like often I'll learn a core play and be like, okay, that seems pretty reasonable and then it's just all the stuff that's like tacked on yeah that yeah that i feel like okay this is going to take me a few times to start to really engage with what is possible this is a little bit of an aside jake but i think that i i want to i want to put out a question um as we continue through this list i'm wondering if games that in which through the course of play you build something or accomplish something that as a as gamers and as a market, we have a higher ability to stomach learning plays of those sorts of games because you still get a sense of accomplishment at the end of them. So think of engine builders like maybe Terraforming Mars or Beyond the Sun, where even if you don't fully make informed decisions, I'm thinking from the psychological perspective, right. you don't even make fully informed decisions. You can still say at the end of, the, of your play, like, oh, I really accomplished something. Whereas a game that really requires learning plays, you might play it and you might sort of have that feeling in the back of your head like, I'm not really playing the final version of this game as the designer intended it or is testing it. Um, and I wonder if that's why one explanation for why engine building games have become so popular. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's certainly possible, I think. I mean, I think there's merit to that idea that not not only do you get to feel satisfied about something you've built, but that's also like really strong feedback for improvement where yeah. if you 
look what I built this game. And then you play again. You're like, look, I've built even more. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So another example, unless do you want to take this one? Uh, no, you take it. Okay. So <laughs> the next example that I want to look at is a game like Azul. I think Azul is, you can have pretty strong first place. Ah, another drafting game. Oh yeah, actually <laughs> a drafting game where you can make real mistakes. And I think that that's another uh, aspect of a game that can lead to really necessitating learning plays. If a game is more or less, if there's sort of rails in the game where everyone's going to say sort of prevented from wandering off the, into the deep end, uh, kind of headed along the same path, oftentimes those are going to have better, easier first play experiences than games where you can make a, a real mistake out of the gate, right? Uh, and I think this makes a lot of sense. So any game that has sort of a perilous decision space where you can make these big mistakes is going to require a learning play because you need to maybe experience those mistakes to master avoiding them. So Azul, you could just put tiles in a spot where you really probably shouldn't be putting tiles or draft a tile and plop it down one of your um, rows. And it's just, it's something you could do, but it's not something you should do. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's like a, pr a nice example because it's a really innocuous one. Sure. But I think games in this category that are more often cited would be like your your food chain magnates yeah. now i know we haven't played that game uh, yeah. as all our listeners are well aware <laughs> but that, that one right people talk about all the time like oh, you yeah, can you lose can from the first turn you can lose which doesn't yeah. appeal to me <laughs> like, I, don't know. <laughs> I need to get over that i'm trying to I, get yeah we, we gotta get us you over it but yeah they're that that type of game for sure Key flower came to mind as another example of this. You could just make certain mistakes building your your little city uh, or your little village that would set you up to really struggle later on in the game. Yeah, I think key flower fits for a ton of reasons. Yeah, like I mean, it's just like really complicated. It makes people be like, I haven't seen anything like this before. Yeah, you know, I think that's like a category all in of itself. It's also an auction game, right? Yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, Keyflower fits here. <laughs> I, I had to delete it from multiple categories as examples. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Another game that came to mind for me, Jake, that kind of surprised me was Blue Lagoon. This is a Reiner Knizia tile laying game in which you're laying uh, tiles across this ar archipelago, trying to get onto as many different islands as possible or pick up lots of different tokens or have the longest chain. Uh, and I think there's a lot about this game where the scoring is pretty straightforward, actually that would make it such that it wouldn't really require a learning play. But I was trying to think about Kinesia games. And I think a lot of his games actually don't necessarily require learning plays. We'll talk about some key exceptions later. And there are some key exceptions. But I realized that Blue Lagoon uh, has this interesting mechanism where you play a whole round of it. You play all your people to the board. And you can. the rule is you can play anywhere adjacent to your own pieces or anywhere where you're touching water. And again, it's an archipelago. So there's lots of water on the board. So it's fairly open where you can play. But then you also have these pieces that you can play that are these little huts. And then after you finish the first round, you play again and the rule changes that you can only place adjacent to uh, pieces of yours that are already on the board, including your huts. So the water rule goes away. So all of a sudden, your choices in the first play of the game really matter for the second because where you chose to put those huts sets you up for where you can go in the second game. So the strategic long-term planning of kind of really needing to understand the nuance of how to set yourself up to have a successful second round matters. Um, and I realized that, yeah, just the, the, the that long-term planning aspect, how, how strategic a game is versus how tactical it is, is really a key differentiator in what might require learning play. Highly tactical games might not require as many learning plays as highly strategic games. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great example. Um, Brendan, I'm going to say something really annoying here, which is like, okay, so every game is kind of like, it's going to be a learning game if it's your first time playing it, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like here in this section, we're talking about games that really require a learning play. We're just saying like, this is, these are games that we can't meaningfully engage with until we've had one against I, a skilled opponent. Is that what we're saying? I think so. Or maybe it takes two or three learning plays to really fully internalize the rules before, okay. Okay. before that you makes, get there, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of a two, a two faceted thing and yeah, you're and talking more about kind of like internalizing the full rule set yeah i think so because okay. yeah it's and the consequences big. of what you're doing okay yeah. because well, yeah right like some of that is it's approaching depth 
for sure. And so, yeah. right. Where it's just like, like the Babylon, like, and I guess, sorry, the Blue Lagoon example, it makes me think of that because I haven't played it myself. But I know it's like a very accessible game. Yep. And yeah, so I feel like in some ways, while all games require learning play, if it's your first time playing it, that just functionally is one. Here, you might need multiple, you know, I'm just getting, I'm getting confused. <laughs> I think okay. Here's the idea, I, and I wonder. I just feel like listeners might be getting confused too. Okay, so if I'm playing Cascadia, if the question is how meaningful and how informed are my decisions in that first yes. place? So I, Cascadia about is a game how Cascadia is different from Blue Lagoon that I said wouldn't really require that many learning plays. I feel like maybe right, maybe in that first play, my decisions are ninety or eighty-five percent as meaningful as they will eventually be. But maybe with Blue Lagoon, uh, those key decisions, there's only like five or six huts that you get to place, but they're really key decisions. Maybe because of misplacements in that first play, I end up making a ton of those decisions. I'm just not as informed as I would be. So it's like 50% as meaningful in terms of my ability to fully grasp it. Does that make more sense? Some element that does. Some element here is that like your your experience playing the game has transformed from the first time you've played it in a meaningful way way yep where you can understand the consequences of your decisions and it's not just simply like i got in one percent better because i played it before i got yeah like 5% i don't think so better. yeah but this I, is like i've really once you play blue lagoon and it won't be the same for everybody but once you played it once or twice all of a sudden on your third play it's like okay i'm actually playing a different game now I think so. And people might push back specifically with Blue Lagoon with that example, because I think that, you know, it's a family weight game that is, I could play it with almost anyone, but I do think it, it, it factors in to some extent. That's another game where when I play it with my family in my first play, at this point, I really try to emphasize the importance of setting yourself up for the second round. And I think that that's something, you know, a, that's a, yeah. we'll, we'll get a into that a little thing. later. It's a funny thing yeah. to say to somebody who's like, but I'm just trying to like understand what the rules are. Yeah. You're like, better be setting yourself up now for the second round. Totally. Like, yeah. Another category of games is games that have player driven game endings, I think can reply, require learning plays. So players can get a sense of how they should respond to the pace of play. So Babylonia is an example where you're sort of trying to figure out the timing and how hard you should be pushing for certain goals or certain connections. Uh, if you should sort of play your tiles, how you should approach playing your farmers and that sort of game. Any game with a timing element, I think, factors in here pretty seriously. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, it's helping me as I take on the role of the listeners who's just like, what are they talking about? I think that's helping me too to think like, these are games that require learning plays so that you can't like get the maximum fun nugget yeah. out of it that you can get right away in a different game. Totally. I think that's so. A, yeah. I think that's a better way of saying it, perhaps. Awesome. Right. Fun Going nuggets. all the way back to the market trends of like people are designing for the first game, but there are all these other games that have amazingly fun gameplay, but you're just not going to get that nugget in totally. the first crack. Cascadia, 10 fun nuggets, first play. First play. Azul, <laughs> seven fun nuggets, then first 10. Play. Yeah, then 15. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Okay, good. Now that we have a fun nugget scale, I'm like, I'm finally in the episode, 45 minutes in. It certainly transformed. Okay, my I life. know what we're talking about. I have to go back on all my BGG reviews ever and add how many fun nuggets there are. I felt I felt so bad because I was just like realizing 40 minutes in the episode. I was like, what are we talking about? <laughs> no, I like I have, you, to, I, I have to raise this question. I'm really glad you did. Because you're probably right. Someone was probably with us. And sometimes I love when we do these episodes where I've driven the notes a little bit more. You're sort of like, where, where are we? How do we end <laughs> yeah. up here? Like, what's happening? But I bet people are with us we're like azul you can't play that just once (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah okay so let's get back on track another example of games that it's going to make you just require more learning plays is just games that aren't super clearly or well signposted yeah so and by signpost we mean there's elements within the game we did a whole episode on signposts so if you want to listen to that just google decision space episode signposts but basically elements of the game that kind of tell you sort of say this is a strategic path you could go down run in this direction and then do this thing after that and you're going to find a strategic path uh not all games strategic environments are like that sometimes they're a little bit more opaque games where they have opaque strategic paths that aren't well signposted 
can take learning blades just to figure out what the heck you should be doing in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And maybe a game where it's not well signposted. So like, yeah. Right. One example of this that came to mind for me, Jake, just to illustrate this point is Tigris and Euphrates. The rules are fairly straightforward. Uh, draw some tiles and play two tiles on your turn. But the consequences of playing those tiles and sort of setting up things in the long term and what you should be doing and how you should be doing it is really unclear. And I think that that's a game that requires... I don't know how many how many pl- game plays of Tiger Team Freddy's before you felt like you had really fully had a sense of what you should be doing. Five, ten. I will let you know when I get there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a, it's just a game that more requires... than more than fifteen. <laughs> but I think that yeah, that's a that's a huge a huge element of that. I like the other example you have listed here, Quantum, because we've been playing okay. that a little bit on Board Game Arena, and that was totally a game where it's like, oh wow, I can look at this rules video it's five minutes long and you start playing and you're like okay it's my turn what yeah what should what I, I do what am i going for i have so yeah. many op- right exactly architects of the west kingdom came to mind for me slightly jake if only because i feel like that game kind of signposts there's those employee cards that you can get uh we talked about in the episode how when i was learning the game i was like oh these cards are so cool they're gonna really matter i need to think about them they have this interesting market mechanism where if you buy down the row you have to put coins on each one that's the designs really asked me to engage with this little area of play and the more you play you sort of realize oh this isn't that big of a part of this game at all they're important but it's not it's not the game. The game yeah. lives on the board. And I think that that's an example where the game kind of signposted to me at least and where the experience I brought to it, hey, this is going to be a big part of the game. And then after three plays, I was sort of like, mm, no, it's not. It matters, but it's not huge. Yeah, yeah, definitely an interesting, yeah, a game that's easy to engage with. It's Yeah, a great example, I think, because it feels very different in this kind of opacity of what you should be doing at a given time versus a Raiders of the North Sea. Very similar weight, same designer, but in that one, it's always like, okay, I need this resource so that I can go raid here in two turns. Really well signed Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. We talked about auction games already. It was an example on my list of games like Modern Art or High Society. Yep. A huge part of this is just internalizing the values because a whole the whole crux of auction games, right, is usually there's uncertainty around the likelihood or, or the value of returns that you'll get from your of what you're bidding on, right? It wouldn't be that interesting to play a game, an auction game where you spend five dollars to buy five points and everyone just starts with the same pool of money. Kanitsi actually pulled it off with high society using money to buy points directly and knowing exactly how many points you get. But he had a key rule, which was that if you spend too much money, if you spend the most money, you can't win. But beyond that, you just have to play him a few times to get a feel for it and and know how to correctly assess value values within the game i think and i think this might be one of the reasons why you know we're talking about this sort of trend away from games that really necessitate learning plays within the market and also this kind of trend away from auction games yep people i you hear that people kind of like begrudge the fact that there aren't as many auction games that come out these days yeah and i think it's for exactly the reasons that we've been talking about in this episode yes okay jake in the year of the dragon there's a game yes. that just lightninged into the, my mind as a game Boom. where I sort of thought, this is a game I didn't, I needed to learn. It, it required numerous learning plays before I really grokked it. And I didn't think it was just the depth in the game. I thought I thought about it some more, and I think it, it just highlights how the interconnection between mechanisms can lead to complexity. You can't fully grok without play. So, you know, it's a Seffenfeld game, so it's a really interesting action selection mechanism that's going to affect what you can do and when you can do it. There's a little bit of relief there by being able to pay money, but you also need that money to pay for other things. So I think it's in the year of dragon in the year of the dragon. It's what it highlights and why it requires so much learning as a reputation for being really brutal is both that the interconnection between mechanisms can lead to complexity. You just can't fully grok without experiencing it. And also cognitive load. There's just a lot of mechanisms to learn in that game. Yeah. Stefan Feld is definitely one of, there's almost like two camps, like of, prominent designers there's those that really lean into the accessible first play like you don't need a learning play you're having fun right away i think reiner knizia as we mentioned uh, obviously he's done both but he tends i think tends more often than not to be like jump in and have fun right away phil walker harding comes to mind as somebody in that heavily maybe the the flag the standard bearer for that 
type of thing, polymory to some extent. And then there's a lot of designers that are are not doing that. And I yeah. I mean, what's the most accessible Stefan Feld game? Castles of Tuscany? I don't know. Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Yeah, it, yeah. there's not they're not accessible. They're all they're all like very, you know, like a, a tight clockwork of mechanistically driven action selection yeah. tends to be something you'll probably want to grapple with a time or two before you really feel like you are just in the like fun nugget zone of making fun decisions as opposed to internalizing what's happening. Yeah. And Uwe Rosenberg kind of spans the spectrum, I think, right? Where you have games like Patchwork, tons of fun nuggets right out the door. And then games like... nuggets. Yeah, just falling out of the box. And then you have uh, A Feast for Odin or Agricola, which we mentioned, that just, you're not going to get the, the, the full the full amount that that game has to offer on your first play. You got to come back and explore it some more. Yeah. Yeah. So the next game that came to mind for me, Jake was broom service. Broom service has pretty, once you, if if you have a good teach, you can fully understand all the rules in broom service. There's nothing within the rules of broom service that are going to confuse you or trip you up. The systems are clear, but there's one really important thing about broom service and making fully informed decisions in that game is being able to think about what other people want to do because there's this Mm. potential to have your actions stolen by other people if they also play that action. So you have to read the board and everyone has- Donkey space games. Donkey space games, yeah. Where if you have to know what the other person is going to do, you have to be able to think about their position as much as you. And that creates enough cognitive load that you need to be comfortable with the game, have experienced it a little bit, that you can start to do that rather than just think about what you want to do within the game. Um, So I think Broom Service is is good on its first play. It's great on its third or fourth or fifth when you can really start to think about, okay, Jake's in this spot. He needs to take a risk. What will Jake do when he takes a risk? And how can I take advantage of him taking that risk to just send him packing? Yeah. Battlecon is a great example for this. And I think that's a good one to kind of test because if you play one game of Battlecon against the same opponent with the same characters like three or five times in a row. Yeah. You're playing totally differently. You're playing totally different games, probably yeah. each of those. Yep. Yeah. So Donkey Space is crazy. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> and then I said we were going to bookend these type of examples with uh, abstract games. So we start with chess. I want to talk about Go. So Go, Jake, is a game, uh, maybe one of the oldest games we have uh, as a culture, which is really cool. Um or maybe one of the oldest that is still super popular. And Go, uh, the rules are really, really simple, but just understanding them and the implications of your decisions just takes so many learning plays. There's long-term planning, there's mistakes, there's uh, those are really the key, the key things going on in Go that just contribute to and lead to needing lots of learning plays. I think Go is also a game where the rules are so simple, but even sometimes being able to see who actually has enclosed what can be tricky to the point where playing the game and just taking a turn isn't hard. Understanding the consequences of what will happen because of it is actually the whole game. And this is another game where people dedicate thousands of plays in their life to just beginning to be competent at Go. That was my experience. I've played it probably 50 times and I I don't. I'm bad at Go and do not understand Go. Well, while you've been talking about Go, Brendan, I've been looking at oldest.org. Okay. Which has a list of oldest board games that I'm highly skeptical of. Can I read this list to you? Sure. The Royal Game of Ur, Senate. What, what do you okay. got? Chess, 680. Okay. Nine Men Morris. We're going from what? youngest We're going to from oldest. AD forward? No, youngest to oldest. Okay. So chess is like the hotness on okay. this list. Okay. Okay. We're getting progressively towards Cult of the Old. Nine Men Morris, 1400 BCE. Okay. Go, 2000 BCE. Yeah. Number six, Royal Game of Ur, 2600 to 2400 BCE. Okay. Okay. Uh, Seems good so far. Moncala? Mehen. Okay. 2700 BCE, Ancient Egypt. Okay, sure. Backgammon, number three. 3000 wow. BCE ancient Persia. That's interesting. Now this is the where I start. I'm not sure. Checkers. Number two. <laughs> 3000 BCE ancient Mesopotamia. Modern day Iraq. Is that possibly true? I don't. Maybe. Or maybe a game similar to Checkers and they're just giving it a pass. And then Senate number one. Okay. 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 So I don't know. That's oldest.org. So you can let us know in the comments. We- 
We should. <laughs> Is that we should, true? We should play backgammon because then we could say we. Yeah. Anyway. Be like, yeah. Let's be like one of the. We'll get to games. go in another thousand years. Exactly. We're actually, like exactly. go with the OG first. Totally. <laughs> so Jake, okay. that's a follow-up question. Maybe we can talk more about player experience in games that just require lots of learning plays because we did that some last episode. But I think right. there's more to it. Yeah, so, let's do it, man. Yeah, we okay. got we got like ten minutes. We could talk. So, so for me, Jake, I really enjoy these types of games because I get the sense from games that really require learning plays that the more I play this game, the more I get out of it, right? The, there's like some sort of um, ludic equity in the game, right? Where the more I play this game, the more fun it is, so the more I want to play it. I think that's part of the reason why I've played 700 games of Seven Wonders is it's just like, oh, I'm starting to fully be able to make meaningful decisions. This is even more fun than it was. It'll probably be even more fun the next time I play. Um, so there's this desire to play these types of games repeatedly for me, where it's like, yeah, I really want to fully understand it. I think also you get a rapid sense of mastery or improvement depending on sort of how many learning plays you really require. If you only need one or two learning plays to really grok the game, but your third play, if let's say it takes two, your third play is meaningfully different than your first, I think that's a really fun arc to experience. And sort of, okay, I played this once. It was interesting enough. I want to play it again. Okay, I played it again. I, I've got this. Played it a third time. Okay, this game's awesome. You know, that's like a pretty fun little three game arc that you could experience from having a learning curve over three learning plays or two. Learning yeah. Plays. I think both of us are maybe on the higher end of <laughs> yeah. the spectrum for how much we enjoy and appreciate learning things sure. in games. Yeah. Like I feel like I derive a significant amount of my enjoyment and appreciation for a game based on how much I feel like I'm learning about it and improving at it from game to game. Yeah. So sometimes a game can kind of flop or I mean, I maybe I still think it's fun or whatever, but if I play it and I do well and I play it again and it feels like I, you know, maybe because like I did, you know, I got luckier, I figured it out so well the first time that in future plays, there's not like much ceiling to explore. That can feel pretty unsatisfying versus, you know, a game where it's like, oh, okay. Like just having those actual moments where I'm like, okay, I should think i can think about this i didn't realize i could think about doing this uh and if i do there's this potential benefit for doing it like that's some of the most exciting moments mm. in it gaming sets up aha me. moments for you right exactly yeah. i love that yep but i think a big thing to consider when we're kind of pitting these two style of games against each other, the kind that are accessible from the get-go and the kind that require more of an investment of time to really start having fun with is just what you prioritize in your game night. Yeah. And some groups are just trying to maximize the most fun they possibly could have in the that individual moment of each game night. And I think for those groups, like the cult of the new, like we're playing this new cool thing, like the new hottest thing, that's like already fun because, hey, we're having like a brand new experience. Yeah. Like we're playing thing that other people are excited about and talking about. So we're like kind of, there, there's some like genuine fun to that, right? Being like a part of the conversation and the discussion. Um, plus a lot of these games are designed for like a great and, you know, si a singularly great first play experience. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And asking your group to say like, hey, I got Kalis or I got Agricola. It might take us, you know, this this one play might not be as as fun as, you know, playing Lost Ruins of Arnak last week, which was like a blast from the first try. You know, it's going to take us, you know, a play or two before we're really up to speed with it. Yeah, that's a lot to ask. But other but if your like group likes going deep, you know, if you're kind of on uh, with us in, in sort of our appreciation for learning and improvement in game that might give you like more fulfillment mm. than the one-off games if you you know if you're like this is our agricola month or year where like every other week we're doing an agricola but but you know to each their own i guess i think of it 
you're kind of highlighting a bias I might have, Jake, which is that I think if I play a game, I was going to pose the question, what's the best game you only played once? But then I realized I can't ask that question because I think there's too much bias involved and it doesn't actually inform about learning plays that much. And my evidence is, and I don't know that this would have been my answer, but it's a game that came to mind for me of a game I've only played once, played recently, and really enjoyed and would love to play again. And that's Imperial 2030, which we played at Geekway, the Matt Gertz game. And I think part of my enjoyment of that game, I don't think it was the best play. Yeah, of, I was going to say, it's kind of like, it was, I yeah. mean, it was fun because we were like gaming together at Geekway. Totally. But I think like, there were a lot of things that made it like kind of a bad play just from like, I don't think we had the right player count. It took us a really long time. We kind of had to keep checking the rule book about some things as we played through it. Went long. And yeah. I Totally. I all, tr- all very true. And I think what endeared me to it is that my brain just went to, oh, if I could play this five times with the same group, I think we'd have such a good experience. You know, like there's so much for me to learn here. Um, and I think that a bias my, I might have is sort of the idea that that perception of like, there being more to explore and right. I haven't played it. So I don't know if that's borne out totally in those repeat plays. We might play it two, three more times and those subsequent plays might be kind of similar to that first play actually. But right now after my first play, even though it was a pretty clunky first play, I still to this day, I'm sort of like, I'd love to play it again. You know, yeah, I want there to be that, but maybe that's also just saying I like games with that reveal their depth over time. And that's slightly different. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I've been thinking just lately, um, I saw that I, I didn't play it, but there's a Kickstarter TCG that was like on board game arena for a second. I know there's like a new Star Wars thing coming out from Fantasy Flight Games. And I was I was kind of getting that like itch again, like, oh, I haven't played like a real collectible card game in a long time. The mm-hmm. closest thing I feel like I've had to like, you know, getting the kind of fulfillment and enjoyment I got out of Keyforge when I got really in depth into that was in playing Challengers so much. Like I was getting a little bit of that. Yeah, out just of a taste. Yeah. Just a taste. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking like, okay, maybe like maybe we should like check out this Star Wars game or like or maybe we should check out that uh Kickstarter game. I can't remember what it's called. I'm not oh, like not Altered or Altered. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. I wasn't like trying to not say it. Uh Altered on Ford Game Arena f- for the show. And and I think part of the allure of these games for me isn't necessarily anything about the mechanisms of it being a trading card game. It's just that I have like memories of like magic and keywords. Mm. And like, I've had these experience where I've like been able to go deep in this type of game yeah, in a way that I haven't been able to for any other game, maybe because it's like a two player game or because there's like often communities around these games and like other people that are wanting to plumb the depths along with me. Mm. But yeah, I think that kind of like community aspect of it is is another thing uh, that can make these games like worth the investment of like learning. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think also just bouncing off that idea, it's really fun to learn things. I find uh, it's really fun to learn things with other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well said. It's, yeah, and- I think a lot of that, like, you know, I did the uh, Sanctimonious Keyforge podcast before this. And what was so fun about that and what was so fun about our like challengers thread was yeah. it felt like we, we were like had our a brain trust going where yeah. we were like, a bunch of people are like getting together thinking about the game trying to understand it and also kind of like trying to be first to understand yeah. it yeah. in a way yeah. yeah like you can't like magic is like it's a moot point you know you're not it's too big there's too many way smarter people already like investing so much time and energy and resources to understanding it that like you know you as an individual person doesn't stand a chance yeah but in these like smaller ecosystems smaller games you know like there was like a time when like there were like a handful of us on that challenger thread were like at the top of the ranks on board game arena we're like we're doing it like we're figuring it out (laughs) like that was so exciting totally you know and and when you're in that mindset you know, I wasn't really caring about winning or losing individual game. It's just like every single one of these, like I'm just like learning, right? Yeah. Like I'm just purely in learning game mode. Yeah, no, completely. That's a fun place to be. I, I think so too. Do you think, Jake, there's, any, can you think of other games that are similar to to Call? And, the, and my example here is that, so to Call has this, it basically has the core game. And then it also says, hey, if you play this way too much, you could also play with this variant where we turn the revealing of tiles into an auction 
So you have to auction off victory points to see if you get to choose where to put certain tiles. So that's a game that sort of says, we want to minimize the amount of learning plays necessary. If you just had the game be, hey, this every time you flip over a tile, it's an auction and you have to spend your victory points, that would be brutal from a learning play perspective. It would take four or five or six or seven games maybe to fully be able to meaningfully make those decisions. But then the designers put in the box and said, hey, if you've played it six or seven times, maybe your group would experience it even more like this when you fully understand there's strategic consequences of certain things happening at certain times in the game. That's a game that won the Spiel Yards in 1999. So it's sort of on the cusp of games maybe designed to be played uh, repeatedly lots of times and games maybe that are designed a little bit more for this amazing like, first yeah, play experience. It sounds, from what you've just said, it feels like there was a clear development and production choice to... Yeah. I don't want to say like concession, but like at least they were presenting a more accessible first play version of sure. the game as the game. Yeah. With a variant to to make it more complicated. Totally. I'm having a hard time thinking of other games that do that with like such a core mechanism within the game. Yeah. I can think of a lot of examples of games that give quick start versus like a more skill testing and involved like draft setup or auction setup. I recently played Age of Innovation, uh, which is a Terra Mystica style game. Yeah. And I think that gives you a lot of latitude in how you want to set up the game from drafting areas on the board, which we did. But you could also, but then we also just kind of got handed a set of faction and powers. And there's, yeah. I think you can kind of like auction off all of that stuff. Fit. Findorf comes to mind, Jake. I was going to say Findorf too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so let's talk about it because I, th I think it's a cool example. So in Findorf, this is an engine building game that's also a Rondell game where you also are drafting cards. But in your first play, the designer, Friedman Fries, just sort of says, don't do the draft. Don't do the draft. I, in your first play of this game, I don't want you to do, do the draft. Or if you're playing with new players, just here's the cards you start with. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of kind of a compromise between having these nuanced systems that players can learn over time and also a strong first play. I love my first play of it. It was great. Yeah. If I played the draft first, maybe I wouldn't feel that way. Yeah. And I keep finding myself in situations where at every play, there's been at least one new person. So I've played sure. it like four or five times now and I've never got to the draft. Yeah. I never play like the same game with the same people more than once. That's my curse. But yeah, it's interesting how we think about these like in Findorf, like the draft is like the variant, but in my head, I think like that's the real game, mm. you know? Yeah, but yeah. in Tikal, I don't think that. I feel like, <laughs> yeah, Tikal, I agree. I was like, this is like the variant for like the psychos out there. Sure. Yeah. Said lovingly, said lovingly. Yeah. Psychos. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. I know we have fans of that way of playing yeah. in the Discord and probably very fun once you've like plumbed the depths. But yeah. I think, I think that's the difference between framing it, it just, as. It's just my preference. Mode. It's like no, the way I, I would also, like to play it. Well, no, I think I would I think like it, to play is the right think, way. And to call, it doesn't say like this is the learning game and this is the game. Right. It says this is the game and this is the the like expert variant. And in Findorf, it says this is the learning game and this is the game. You know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the exact phrasing is, but yeah, sure, I think, but I think you, you get might what I'm saying right. semantically hinting. Right. At, yeah. I think in Age of Innovation, I had the sense that like we were playing the game for beginners because we sure. weren't doing the whole auction or draft or what. I don't even know what it is because we didn't do it. Sure. But, you know, I I'm certain that groups that go back to that game and play it multiple times would think that, you know, the full setup, you know, with all the drafting and skill testing decisions is the actual game. Yeah. And otherwise it's like playing Catan where you just get a random starting space. Right. Oh, is that how you, can you play Catan that way? No, I guess you could. No, that's why I might, that was my, that was the analogy. Oh, I see. I was like, like I don't <laughs> want to play Catan that way. <laughs> get set up on a two, two of sheep. And then just, that's your game. Oof. Yeah, I'd rather just get all the good spaces and then watch as only twos get rolled all game anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are we ever going to do Catan? Probably not, it sounds like. <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I, I, I have good memories of Catan. I haven't played it in a long time, but yeah. I, was I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath for it if you're a pre-planner out yeah, there. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I was just telling Maya, we haven't played in a long time. I think we'll wait until our son is like 12 and then, or 10 and then play, you know? Yeah. 
get on the second time around. Okay, we are now rambling. Jake and I just are enjoying talking to each other. Jake, do you have any closing thoughts on learning plays? Any sort of insights you glean from the episode or just thoughts in your mind as we close things out? I think the thought I'm leaving with is this idea that developers and publishers aren't necessarily designing for a good first play for all new players, but are designing for a good first play with players of different skill levels. I think that's really interesting. And also I know from experience that I'm when I've been working on my little dinky games that I design, I'm showing them to people. I am playing them with a lot of experience against people that don't have any. And I want it to be fun in that ecosystem. So I think maybe it's two things. It's like, yeah, everybody wants that. And also it's like, that's actually the ecosystem that these games are being tested in the most. So I just think that's kind of interesting. Totally. I will also say that I think as a as someone who's designed games, a trap that you can fall into and that I've fallen into is designing you're going to have played your game more than anyone else in the entire world up until the point that it's published, right? So you increasingly, it's going to be really difficult for you to understand what the first play experience is like. And you have to trust your play testers and watch your play testers because your ability to have a first play experience of the game is almost non-existent, right? Because you've oftentimes, by the time you're even fully finalizing the mechanisms, you've played the game enough that you're not going to have a learning play of it. You, you can't you made it so you have to rely on other people for their sense of a learning play and we've seen how important learning plays really are yeah totally yeah this gives me a lot to think about yeah but we've already gone on too long so maybe we'll think about you know kind of the design implications of learning plays uh at some point in the future but until then we should sign off and be sure to thank hembry as always for our intro and outro song reach out and yeah if you have thoughts on learning plays come talk with us in our discord you can find a link to it in our show notes or on decisionspacepodcast.com uh, but until next time bye y'all bye y'all